welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So, has the departure of Dominic Raab from government drawn a line under the simmering tensions between ministers and civil servants? No, not really. If anything, relations appear to be getting worse. How should ministers work with officials to deliver their priorities? Have expectations of behaviour changed? Or has snowflakery broken out? Perhaps it is time to reform or maybe politicise the civil service. The big story this week isn't taking place in Westminster, but in Sudan, where we're seeing another tricky evacuation of UK nationals from an increasingly dangerous situation. We assess what we know about the Foreign Office's handling of this crisis. And then we'll turn our attention to another department's handling of a crisis, and that's the Treasury's response to the COVID pandemic. A major new IFG report out this week has examined its performance under those extraordinary and unprecedented times. We'll talk to one of the report's authors. I'm joined throughout by a trio of IFG experts and podcast regulars to make sense of it all. And that's Alex Thomas. Hi, Anna. Tim Durrant. Hello. And Kath Haddon. Hello. Hi, everyone. Now, as we discussed last week, when Dominic Raab left government, it is fair to say that he left with a point to make and not a happy one. His allies have continued to attack the civil service. The idea of more political appointments has resurfaced and a common select committee has announced a new inquiry into the relationship between ministers and officials and whether the government's engine room still functions as intended. So where does this row go next? Kath, when you knew the Raab report was on its way, did you foresee this fallout? To some extent, yes. There was a strong feeling that, you know, especially given how much Raab had been talking in the months that this inquiry has been going on about how he was firm defence, he was convinced that he hadn't done anything wrong, it kind of felt like there was going to be some kind of row. And there was a bit of talk about whether or not there would be a backlash against the civil service, whether it's for the inquiries or just for the handling of the whole process. And we've seen a backlash previously when standards issues have come up about MPs or ministers talking about the need for natural justice, the idea that it needed to be an even more legalistic approach, even though it's a very political uh, approach, any inquiries under the ministerial code. So, so yeah, some kind of clash between those supporters of Dominic Raab or Dominic Raab himself and aspects of the civil service did seem likely. But even so, it surprised me just the, the scale of it. You're absolutely right in terms of sort of recent years, if you look back to Owen Patterson, also Boris Johnson's response to the Privileges Committee inquiry, there's a there's a lot of tendency now to question the process. Yeah. The sort of kangaroo court is the sort of often used, uh, used term. term. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think that the people who do that would be equally happy with everything being no, judicialised, would it's they? It's incredibly ironic because it is the same... Um, section of uh, the government, the the Conservative Party, who have oftentimes pushed against the idea of the courts getting more and more involved in anything to do with politics. So, you know, the rights and privileges of Parliament or uh, to do with the ministerial code. Nobody wants the ministerial code to be a justiciable document. So there is a bit of cake and eat it kind of approach to this, which is a bit uh, aggravating. Alex, how much do you feel that the backlash, the row we've seen since the Raab report was published, was the consequence of how Rishi Sunak handled uh, Raab's exit? I, a fair bit, actually, I think. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's um, it escalated even more than perhaps we were an- anticipating uh, anticipating then. I think there was always going to be a row, but I do think that Sunak's failure to mention the sort of reason why Dominic Raab resigned in his uh, in, in his response to Dominic Robb's 
resignation letter um, helped set in train this media narrative that has taken hold over the course of the last uh, few days and the debate about uh, the civil service more generally, the politicisation of the civil service. I'm a bit mystified from Rishi Sunak's perspective on all of this because I can completely see why it's in Dominic Raab's interest to create a row over this and to litigate the process and uh, and so on, as you were just saying with Kath. Um, I'm not sure it's actually in Rishi Sunak's interest in terms of his you know running his government over the course of the next 18 months to uh, a, a presumed general election because he wants to be building on the narrative that was starting to develop about kind of competence and uh, effective government. He needs the civil service to do that. A big row about the civil service doesn't really seem to be particularly in his uh, interest at the moment. And that's basically what he triggered by omission and by not uh, shutting this down, uh, either in that resignation letter or, or shortly afterwards. Yeah, I think you've kind of got to see how much of this is particular to this situation and to Dominic Raab, because I'm sure it's been thrown around a lot this week, but nothing became him like the leaving of it. It is extraordinary for somebody to resign off the back of a bullying accusation and then follow that up with repeated articles in national newspapers and interview with the BBC defending his position. And I don't think we've seen that with any equivalent ministerial resignation. Normally what happens is they go off quietly wherever they go and then you get a lot of briefings from friends of the minister or something like that. This time you got that, friends of the minister, but you also got Dominic Raab everywhere for a few days of time. And that that was probably uncomfortable for, for Sunak as well. And I, I would hope that at some point he turned around and said, please stop because that's incredibly damaging to the civil service. And that was extraordinary behaviour, really. And yet, I mean, one of his allegations was that this was a sort of civil service plot to oust him, that the outcome of the report would be a open season for civil servants who didn't like ministers to try to get rid of them. And in the past week, we have had another story, Tim, about this time from the Department of Health, complaints from civil servants about their minister. So yeah. perhaps he's right. I think it's it's a really interesting moment, isn't it? Because I think the fact that it's been become a story, the fact that someone in the Department of Health has chosen to go to a journalist and said this is happening inside the department, you can understand why conservatives would be concerned about that. They think there there is some kind of you know movement. Some, Dominic Raab in his Telegraph article said that there was unionised officials kind of working against the government and talked about activist civil servants. And actually, I think had if if there is an issue in the Department of Health with the Health Secretary Steve Barclay, at this point, senior officials and ministers and advisors are going to be very live to this kind of thing. And you would think that there would be messages going out from civil service leadership saying, you know, we want to ensure that. Everyone feels able to raise any concerns that they have, and we want to make sure that we're serving uh, our ministers to the best of our ability. So if you have an issue, please come and talk to me, the Permanent Secretary, the DG, whoever it might be. That's what should have happened. And the fact that these some, whoever it is has gone to journalists and said there is an issue, I think is going to absolutely annoy ministers, and, 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 and they're right to be, because if you're serious about wanting to improve it, and if you think this really is an issue, then deal with it properly inside and and recognise that this is a moment. If you want to make this into a campaign, or you want to further damage the relationship between the civil service and the current set of ministers, then go to the press about it. I completely agree with what Tim said there. Um, the uh, one, you know, one small point, which is... You know, 
obviously exactly as Tim says, if there's something that needs investigating, it needs investigating. But I do worry this is you know, extremely damaging for the civil service as it is at the moment. If you get this drumbeat of stories to any civil servants thinking about this, nothing would please Dominic Raab more than to have a succession of stories like this because it vindicates his claim. Whatever's going on inside the department, really important that things are properly investigated. But the leaking has to be an absolute last resort. I mean, you can potentially see how it was justified in the Ministry of Justice if uh, civil servants were really feeling that their concerns weren't being properly taken account of. Um, But I don't see how it's justified in these and other cases. And it's not helpful to people who are actually struggling with Mm. bullying cases. You're just damaging the possibility of a robust complaints procedure and, you know, helping improve those. Because what you want to do in the first instance is if there is a problem in a relationship is resolve it. It shouldn't have to lead to inquiries and departures and all the rest of it. So, yeah, yeah, I completely agree as well. Alex, we saw an intervention as part of this whole debate from Lord Maud this week. Can you tell us about that and uh, what you made of it? Yes, so Lord Maud has been doing for quite a long time now a review into um, government accountability and civil service accountability that uh, uh, we are eagerly awaiting the uh, the results of because it's um, right in the area of interest for us. So he was commissioned to do that last year. It was supposed to report by September, but is still September last year, that is, but is still um, rolling on. He wrote an article over the weekend using the Raab um, controversy as a reason to highlight, in his view, the importance of better accountability for civil servants. Uh, I think it was a mistake to conflate the two. Um, the Dominic Raab situation, I think, is quite a different one from uh, how civil servants are, uh, are held accountable, but opinions differ on that. The really interesting thing about the Lord Maud intervention, though, was that while he uh, he, d- he didn't go all the way in his article, but it was definitely written up and the, the sort of discussion around it talked a lot about more political appointments to the civil service and the politicisation of the civil service. So impartiality and the benefits or otherwise of impartiality in the civil service has um, has, has come to the fore as a result of Francis Maud's article there. I think you know, th- there is a really interesting debate to be had around impartiality. Uh, I personally think it's, you know, it's very important, but it's not kind of axiomatic that you must have an impartial civil service. Different countries do it differently. Uh, and I think without going completely down this rabbit hole, I think one of the difficulties from the civil services point of view is that there is a view at the moment that some of the benefits of impartiality, you know, getting the best people in the best jobs, honesty to uh, ministers, really deep expert advice, isn't a feature of the current civil service as much as it might be. So there's a real job for those who want to argue for an impartial civil service to be able to say how the civil service as, you know, as it currently is can, can do that in the best possible way. And Tim, one of the other people to intervene in this debate was Nick Timothy, who called for more political appointments, half the number of civil servants and doubling their pay. What did you make of that intervention? I think, the, as, as Alex says, that you know, there's a, there's a really interesting question about more political appointments. Um, ministers have special advisers. We at the IFG have always said special advisers are a good thing, and if ministers want more, then that that makes a lot of sense. You know, they they provide a lot of value. They support the civil service as well because it means that permanent civil servants don't have to get politicised. They don't have to worry too much or at all, really. It's not their job to think about, you know, party handling and so on. That's what special advisers are there for. On halving the number of civil servants, I mean, that is a bold approach. I think if you halve the size of the government, it doesn't halve what it can do, but you are going to reduce what the government can do. And I think, like, don't want to put words in Nick Timothy's mouth, but I, I imagine perhaps he sort of, you know, chose a number like that to kind of be uh, attract attention and, and provoke a debate rather than because he's necessarily thought through exactly what he, he thinks government should stop doing. But I think there is an interesting question about how big the civil service has 
grown over the last few years. This is something that she's been looking into for a long time. You know, numbers have been going up since the referendum in 2016, started to plateau a bit now. But do, do we still want the state to do everything that it has taken on over the last few years? That's a legitimate debate to be had, absolutely. Uh, and paying them more. I mean, retention is difficult in, in the public sector in general, ensuring that you get the right people. If, as uh, Francis Maud also alludes to, you know, we want more expertise, then is the civil service going to have to start competing with the private sector on pay rates for certain jobs? I think that there's absolutely a debate to be had about all of this stuff. On reducing numbers, just quickly, I, this debate tends to get sort of captured by those who are very focused on policy civil servants and civil servants close to ministers. And uh, actually, I mean, we've written before, I've written before, that um, that there probably is some scope after Brexit and COVID to slim down the number of policy officials right in the centre of government. And that may be where Nick Timothy gets his view from. I think if you're talking about halving or you know, anywhere near that, uh, frontline civil servants, job centres, prison officers, you know, I, you just can't see that in the current context. So as Tim says, it feels like a bit of rhetoric there. If you want to think about fewer, better paid, better skilled civil servants, I think you need to look right in the kind of the heart of policymaking in, in government departments rather than at the front line, which is where the vast majority of civil servants actually operate. And Kath, just a year to go, we think, possibly, until the next general election, maybe less. Do you see anything actually of substance happening in this space before then? No. <laughs> I mean, well, we're going to get Francis Maud's report at some point, but um, you are now looking at down the barrel of the number of days that you've got left to get through the legislation that you're already talking about. You might have one more King speech where you announce more things that you want to do before the next general election, but you don't have a lot of time to do that. Obviously, not everything we're talking about here would require legislation, but in terms of government's time, um, the scope of, of, you know, attention that ministers and senior civil servants have, you're surely going to want to focus on delivering the stuff that you've already promised rather than coming up with a load of new wheezes of things that you want to do. There might be more talk about this. There might be stuff going into the general election. There might be some big, bold claims in manifestos, definitely. But in terms of actual action, it seems pretty unlikely. But in the meantime, Alex, having the civil service to blame for the things that the government doesn't get done that it's promised to do between now and the election unfortunately seems like potentially a tempting prospect for ministers yes and that's hardly you know hardly a new thing civil servants uh, for all the sort of snowflake chatter actually have pretty thick skins when it comes to this sort of uh, this sort of thing and it's par for the course i think the thing that was you know, really difficult and I hope doesn't come back and really frustrated a lot of um, a lot of those working in government was the Jacob Rees-Mogg period where it felt like there were exocets being fired at the civil service to no real end. I mean, the, the civil service is up for a kind of constructive discussion, or it should be, about reform, but just using civil servants as an excuse or a shield uh, it's tempting, but it's really. I mean, firstly, I'm not sure how much this stuff cuts through in, in, in sort of in terms of electoral politics. So, does it really matter anyway? Uh, and secondly, it's just demotivating the very people who you need to uh, enact all of your policies. So, it is tempting, but I, I would certainly say resist that temptation. But I think we probably will see quite a lot more talk about this over the coming year. Let's turn our attention to the increasingly worrying situation in Sudan. Alex, the situation on the ground is not looking good, is it? No, certainly. I mean, in Sudan as a country, because I think there are there are I mean, there are lots of things going on, and what's a very complicated situation. But there are you know, the, the the 
separating out the two main parts of it. One is the situation in Sudan and uh, an escalating conflict between these two different parts of the military, quasi-military in Sudan on the ground that is looking really uh, worrying. And there's a whole question there about how the international community can bring pressure to bear on these two sides to resolve it, to extend, as we're recording, there's a ceasefire that seems to be sort of just about holding, um, but to extend that, that ceasefire and then to uh, try to stabilise the situation to prevent all the kind of awful consequences that we see all too often as a result of conflict. But then the separate thing which may be a bit more relevant to the immediate short-term UK government is the evacuation of British nationals and others, which has caused much debate and discussion over the course of the last few days, a suggestion that maybe the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence were a bit slow off the mark um, to start with, and other countries were evacuating their citizens and others from Khartoum before the UK got its acting gear. Some unfortunate echoes of the Afghanistan evacuation that you know could certainly have gone a lot better than it than it did. Um, I think what the UK government would say was that actually Sudan is an enormous country. Khartoum was incredibly dangerous. The fact that the UK waited for a ceasefire and then really went for it actually enabled more people to get out more safely. As we learnt from the Afghanistan thing, it's really very, very difficult in a highly complicated, highly mobile situation like this to know what's actually going on and what's worked and what the right decision was. So the you know really welcome the fact that Alyssa Kearns has said that the Foreign Affairs Select Committee will look into this. They did some really important work on the Afghanistan evacuation. So one of the things I'll be looking for as we go forward on this is did the Foreign Office, did the MOD learn the lessons of Afghanistan and how were they applied in the context of Sudan? And so it, ju- it just feels a little bit too soon to reach any definitive decisions about how well the government's done. Tim, you wrote a great paper for us last year on the Foreign Office looking at the merger with DFID. As part of that, you looked at the Afghan withdrawal and sorts of lessons that the department was trying to learn. Have you seen any signs of, of what might be being done differently this time around? So after the... Uh the report that Tom Tugendhat, now a minister, then um, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee did, uh, the Foreign Office went through a big lessons learned process and they were very, uh, in a report they published last year, they were at pains to say how much they had taken from the Afghan process when planning the response to the invasion of Ukraine and thinking about both in terms of managing the UK diplomatic presence in Ukraine and taking diplomats away from Kyiv when the invasion first began, uh, but also in terms of evacuating UK nationals and other people with, with links to the UK. Uh, and I would imagine there'll be that same process again you know that obviously each situation is is unique but there'll be a kind of a building on 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 both Afghanistan in 2021 and Ukraine last year when uh, the government is thinking about this i mean some of the practical things that the foreign office said it is doing differently as a result of its lessons learned from afghanistan are things like better onboarding for people who are being drafted into the kind of crisis team so that people know immediately sort of what they're supposed to be doing and who they're reporting to and that kind of thing but also better support. So there's a, a kind of on-call counsellor for for the, the emergency crisis team who are working flat out to ensure that they're uh, thinking about that. Better cross-government working. So one of the big themes that came out of Afghanistan, the, the Kabul evacuation, was that while on the ground in Kabul there was good cooperation between uh, the different civilian bits of UK government and the military, actually back here in London, MOD was saying one thing, Foreign Office was saying another thing, Home Office was saying something else. And so the Foreign Office have said they are trying uh, or have set up ways to ensure that there is better communication back in Whitehall as well as in country. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of the kind of public communications on this because another um, criticism of the Foreign Affairs Committee on the Kabul evacuation was around uh, when MPs were being contacted by their constituents who had family members or or 
other contacts in Afghanistan, MPs weren't able to be reassuring to those people because they weren't getting information out of the government. And so the Foreign Office said, we, you know, we've, we've reviewed our processes on how we communicate with MPs about this stuff. And it'll be interesting to see if they're doing something similar this time around, because there are quite a lot of Brits in Sudan, whether um, dual nationals or uh, sole UK nationals. And um, there, I'm sure there will be people raising concerns with their MPs. So there's a big piece around kind of communication inside the UK about exactly what the government is doing, which will help reassure people and therefore hopefully give the government a bit more kind of bandwidth to actually get on with finishing the evacuation as, as, as far as it can. Kath, one of the problems that Dominic Robb, in fact, uh, experienced with the Afghanistan crisis was that he went on and stayed on holiday. James Cleverly appears to have learned that lesson. Do you think he's handling the, the crisis Effectively, There is clearly a uh, comms issue in terms of how the media handle it. Obviously, the media are looking for any comparisons to Kabul. It's very difficult to tell what's kind of going on because you hear lots of stories of obviously people who are talking about not being able to get hold of anybody to find out if they're on the list, being given instructions, being told to go to the Foreign Office website and that's no help and stuff. But you don't know if those are isolated stories or whether that's a sort of repeated pattern or, or whatever. But you're definitely getting a sense of the government, the FCDO being on the front foot, not only James Cleverly, but also Andrew Mitchell, the development minister across the airwaves in Parliament, giving a, a, a ministerial statement. But again, you just don't know how much that's trying to spin the stories. Obviously, they got caught out in terms of the ambassador being back in over here in the UK. But it happens. You know, there are contingencies for that. It, from the way they're briefed, it out. It sounds like he's been working flat out on this. You can imagine nothing else. So I think it's a bit unfair to sort of just point to the fact that, that somebody happened to be back in the UK because that's the nature of the Foreign Office. I mean, I think it was more the fact that there were several of the people yeah. to, in at the same time who, who weren't at post, wasn't it? Alex, uh, just throwing this forward a bit, in past weeks we've talked about the government's small boats plan and it seems that the deterioration of the situation in Sudan is going to have repercussions down the line, very probably, for people trying to get out of Sudan and potentially into the UK. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's there, there's a short-term and a long-term point here. The short-term one is that there is a bit of debate at the moment and uh, for all that I agree with Kath on the good communications, some differences of nuance, if we can say, between what Andrew Mitchell and what um, Home Office Ministers was were saying about this, about uh, the extent to which non-British nationals could be allowed into the country or the sort of how the government's overall positioning on asylum and immigration collides with uh, the need to rescue as many people as possible in a crisis situation like this. So there is that kind of short-term debate that's going on just as the legislation on small boats and um, asylum is, is in the House of Commons. But the more significant point, as you were indicating, I think, in the question is uh, is is what you know yet another geopolitical crisis more refugees more people coming across borders more desperate people crossing the channel uh, or trying to cross the channel means for, for immigration policy generally i mean sudan is not at present one of the five or six highest number of asylum seekers coming to the uk you might expect if the country really does go into a collapse you know very large country with you know, a certain amount of links with the uk you might expect those numbers of people who want to um, come here for 
safe harbour to to go up. And it is a very uncomfortable place for ministers to be when they're trying to reconcile the UK being willing to take on people who are in genuinely desperate straits with this kind of no no safe and legal routes to come here unless you're uh, from Hong Kong or Ukraine or in some circumstances Afghanistan. So uh, I think ministers are going to continue to be asked that question and they frankly they need a better answer for it than there are these few kind of micro schemes that you can do. Sort of shutting down the rest of the world doesn't feel like a sustainable immigration policy. Let's turn our attention to how another government department handled a crisis, and that's the Treasury and the way it responded to the COVID pandemic. We have a major report out this week, which takes a close look at the key decisions it took, the analysis it produced, and the way it interacted with other government departments. And Gemma Tetlow, the report's co-author and our chief economist, joins us now. Hi, Gemma. Hi. So why did we do this report? As you just set out, COVID pandemic was a major moment for UK government and crises often bring out the best and worst in people. So we thought it was an opportune time to sort of reflect on how the Treasury performed in that period. We looked specifically at the Treasury because while this was fundamentally a health crisis, the it had major economic impacts and the Treasury was a really key player during the pandemic in a lot of the government's response. In terms of why do it now, um, these are clearly questions that the COVID inquiry is ultimately going to get into as well, but that could take years to come to any conclusions. And our feeling was that by the time that happens, it's quite possible that memories will have faded and people will have moved on from their posts. And so it was, we felt it was important to ask some of these questions now and try and learn some of the lessons while it's still more fresh in people's minds. We spoke to over 50 people, a range of people who had been working in the Treasury during the pandemic or in other parts of government during the pandemic, and external experts who'd worked closely with government. Unfortunately, the thing that made this project slightly difficult was that the Treasury themselves, current Treasury officials, uh, felt that the guidance that they'd received from the Cabinet Office around the COVID inquiry meant that they couldn't engage with us properly on this project. Ultimately, we have had some interaction with the Treasury and we showed them an earlier draft of the report to get factual corrections made. So we've been able to reflect some of the Treasury's perspective on this, but we haven't fully been able to get to the bottom of all of what was going on within the Treasury. So we've had to rely and sort of focus in the report on the way Treasury interacted with other parts of government and with the outside world. So let's start with the positives. What did we uh, find about the Treasury's early response to the pandemic? The Treasury was really impressive in the early stage of the pandemic. It managed to roll out huge programmes of support for workers through the furlough scheme, for self-employed incomes and for businesses through loans and grant schemes, which were got up and running in a matter of days. Um, So it was really very impressive how quickly that economic support was announced and then rolled out so that when the government shut down the economy, that didn't translate into widespread loss of jobs and business failure. But not everything went well. And your report our report, finds room for improvement in the later response, which in some sense we felt highlights wider questions about the way the Treasury works. We sort of identified three phases in the pandemic and the way the Treasury interacted with the rest of government during those three phases. So in the first phase, in a sense, government had, the Prime Minister had made the decision to lock down. And in that context, the Treasury was then responding, given the lockdown, what did it need to do to offer economic support? And in a sense, in that phase, the Treasury didn't need to interact 
too much with a lot of the rest of government. It worked very well with other delivery departments like HMRC and the British Business Bank to deliver those employment support schemes and loan schemes, but it was, in a sense, taking as given those public health decisions. Once you got beyond that initial lockdown phase and into sort of late spring and early summer of 2020, the decisions that government was facing became much more complicated. There started to be a question about how do we balance these different objectives? How do we keep the disease under control, but whilst trying to ease some of the economic restrictions? And in that context, there was a much more complicated decision facing ministers. To do those decisions well, you needed to integrate an understanding of what were the economic impacts with what were the health impacts. And particularly in this case, it was there were quite complex interrelationships between these things that how much the disease spread depended on people's behaviour, their economic activity, and vice versa, whether or not people were happy to go out and interact face to face depended on the threat that they felt they faced from the disease. And unfortunately, throughout much of the rest of 2020, our research suggests that that sort of evidence and analysis of the health and economic impacts of what was going on weren't being well synthesised within the centre of government to support ministerial decision-making. And ministerial decision-making became something of a tug-of-war um, with essentially the Department of Health putting the health case. It's too extreme to say that the Department of Health was just saying lockdown forever, that's unambiguously good, but that's there was sort of more of that coming from Matt Hancock and Department of Health. And in that context, what our interviews suggested is that the Treasury felt that it needed to put the economic case as almost a counter to that and just argue quite hard for the need to open up the economy. And because there wasn't a very strong synthesis of evidence going on in the centre of government, and really it was the Cabinet Office who had prime responsibility for trying to synthesise evidence from across departments, that wasn't happening very effectively. And in that context, some of the Treasury's behaviours contributed to weaknesses in decision-making. Um, in particular, the Treasury is quite secretive with the type of analysis it was doing. In some cases, we haven't quite been able to bottom out whether the Treasury was doing analysis and not sharing it with other parts of government or wasn't doing it at all. But certainly in terms of what it was sharing with other parts of government, they weren't sharing some of the sort of analysis we would have expected to see, sort of going beyond just observing that when there's a lockdown in place, economic activity is low, and trying to understand the extent to which the low level of economic activity was really caused by the lockdown, or whether even without lockdown, that would have happened because people would have been scared from the threat of the disease. So there's a sense of uh, Treasury officials and ministers sharing information and evidence quite tactically to support their minister's position. And I guess it's quite widely on the record that Rishi Sunak as Chancellor was on the more uh, lockdown sceptic end of the spectrum during that period and Treasury shared uh, analysis in that vein. And then the third phase, things looked up again. Yes, yeah, so from the really the end of 2020 onwards, things seem to have got better. Um, I think there are a few factors going on in that later period that it's hard to disentangle which were the most important. One thing was that it became much clearer that a vaccine was possible and was going to be rolled out more quickly. And that did make some of these choices easier within government. In the earlier phase, the 
you're potentially facing a situation of never having a vaccine and therefore asking the question, can we keep locking down the country repeatedly to keep this under control? Or do we need to accept that we may need a higher level of deaths to get to a point where we have something more like herd immunity within the population? So those decisions, those kind of choices became much easier once a vaccine was clearly on the horizon. Um, but at the same time, and we think this was part of what improved the dynamics and the decision making within government was that the cabinet office got up and running a much more effective analytical synthesis team that had the capacity to really work with departments across government to draw together the evidence. They had more clout to get the Treasury to get involved. And we've also heard that the Treasury started to interact in a more constructive way um, from the end of 2020 onwards with that Cabinet Office team to really work together to synthesise evidence from across government. Tim, you used to be a Treasury official. Would you say it is a secretive department? It's fascinating listening to, to Gemma talking about it. And um, I, I have skimmed the report, but I need to go and read it properly because, yeah, there's so much in there that sort of um, rings bells with with how Treasury works. I think it's worth kind of taking a step back and thinking about what does Treasury do in normal times? You know, Treasury is responsible for tax policy, it sets budgets. And with those things, the, the description that Gemma just gave, that's how Treasury makes its own policy normally. You know, the Chancellor decides tax rates. He doesn't tell his, and it's always been a he, he doesn't tell his cabinet colleagues anything about what he's going to do in the budget. They hear it in the House of Commons when he, when he uh, reads out the speech, just like the rest of us. And the Treasury, working with HMRC on its analysis, does all of that analysis internally. It isn't even necessarily a fan of kind of discussing that with businesses because it's concerned that if it sort of tests some of its ideas with some businesses, that will give them a kind of commercial advantage or a competitive advantage, or it doesn't want to kind of move markets by providing too much information about what it's thinking. So it's kind of its normal way of doing things is quite closed. It is the sole decision maker, maybe it's the Chancellor talking to the Prime Minister, but there isn't a, I would say, a habit inside Treasury of having to bring in lots of different points of view and consider lots of different things because they control the money and because they are the ones who are in charge of decisions around the money. They are the ones who, who get to make those decisions. That point you make there about tax policy making, Tim, is obviously something the IFG has, has worked on. Uh, in the past, just highlighting just how unusual that policy-making process is within the Treasury and something that we are continuing to work on. Alex, you were once a civil servant in the Cabinet Office, and Gemma was mentioning there that uh, the Cabinet Office also played a key role. How much blame do you think it needs to take for the more dysfunctional phase, which Gemma was talking about there in late 2020? A fair bit of it, I, I think, and uh, you know, one of the reasons we're uh, we've launched this commission on the centre of government is uh, to try and address some of the um, uh, deficiencies as we would see them in how the centre worked during COVID, but also more generally. I mean, one of the brilliant insights from Gemma and uh, Ollie Bartram's report is this kind of three-phase analysis which explains quite a lot of what was going on in government, particularly in the Cabinet Office at the time. It's not just relevant for the for the Treasury, because initial crisis response, plenty to criticise in that, but you can sort of understand why it happened. And then the phase three, when the vaccine uh, started to come through, there was the roadmap that was pulled together in the Cabinet Office in February 2021. That was the first time the government properly seemed to be grappling with some of these complicated trade-offs. But, but that was in part because, as Gemma said, the incentives were aligning within government to encourage everybody to work together because there was a there was a there was a way out. Um, that middle phase, uh, I think, was always going to be difficult and chaotic, and you were dealing with a still uncertain picture, but 
where enough was known to get departments in their trenches and for lots of different views to be expressed. The cabinet office failure was not to be strong or authoritative authoritative enough to perform a proper brokering role, to be able to say to the Treasury, come on, you've got to share this analysis, or if you haven't done it, you've got to do it, and to crack the Treasury's you know, metaphorical heads together with the Department of Health, with other um, bits of government. The COVID task force was in existence by then, but obviously had not taken enough root or didn't have enough authority and led to some of the very, very odd decisions around delayed lockdowns in the autumn and winter of 2020-2021, social distancing, two metres, one metre, one and a half metres, split the difference, all of these all of, all, all of these things. And that, that did not feel ordered or like there was a proper secretariat-style process for dealing with those trade-offs until we got into 2021. And I do think a lot of that rests on the Cabinet Office's door. Kath, are we going to see some of these questions asked by the COVID inquiry? Is this the sort of stuff you think they're going to be looking at? Oh, undoubtedly. This echoes a lot of the research that we were doing during COVID itself. Uh, Tom Sass and I wrote a report uh, looking at science advice. So it was almost the other side of the coin. And it's almost the mirror image of this, that a lot of the scientists we were talking to were talking about this frustration with the Treasury, particularly during that eat out to help out late 2020 period and about the difficulty of bringing together those different perspectives. It wasn't just that one dynamic between health and and economics. Obviously, there were lots of other factors across government. We're still talking about uh, the impact on schools and on children. But yes, of course, the COVID inquiry needs to look into all of these things. I think the important thing is it also needs to look into how much has government attempted to tackle this? Has it learnt lessons are we likely to see a repeat of that in in the future? Is that 2021 learning something that we can be reassured of in the future? And I mean, it's a really interesting point that obviously the Chancellor during all of that is now the Prime Minister. So would he want the Treasury to have worked differently given he's now in a very different seat? And fortunately, Gemma, because you've put this report out this week, the Treasury doesn't have to wait for the COVID inquiry to learn those lessons. It can learn them right now. So what what is it you recommend the Treasury needs to think about ahead of any potential future similar or different crisis? I mean, a lot of it is 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 do the things you did well again. But there are some things that we, we also think could be done differently. Yes, I'd, I'd highlight three things for the Treasury and one for the Cabinet Office. For the Treasury, starting with risk preparation, as you say, I think one lesson to learn is that actually the agility and quick moving of the Treasury was a real strength this time. So maintain that. But if we were going to criticise risk preparedness. It was clear that the Treasury hadn't really done any specific preparations for a pandemic, even though that was identified as at the top of the National Risk Register. And some of the sort of response that ended up being needed probably could have been anticipated and wargamed a bit more if the Treasury had done that. So I think there is, although the Treasury has really good systems in place for identifying and managing economic and financial sector risks, it hasn't really had that in place for thick risks that are fundamentally not economic in nature. So I think a bit more focus is needed there to prepare for the risks on the risk register that have economic impacts, but they're not economic risks. Um, The second area we identify in the report is a need to strengthen um, the capacity within the Treasury to generate and use high-quality evidence. And we point to a few possible recommendations there, including around changing the leadership of analysis within the department and creating more, more of a career path for specialist, technical, skilled people within the department rather than people having to become rather generalist and managerial to progress. 
The third area that we identified as being problematic and worthy of reform sort of is that some of it seems to have come down to slightly problematic interactions between ministers and officials and a sense perhaps that the the nature of analysis that was done within the department was shaped either by explicit ministerial steers on what ministers wanted to see uh, in terms of their sort of preconceived uh, biases on some of these issues or at the very least a sort of senior civil servant's preempting what they thought ministers' reactions might be to certain type of analysis being put in front of them. There we've echoed recommendations that Alex and others have made in previous work on the civil service statute, suggesting that should be a, a clearer <laughs> explanation within a civil service statute of the responsibility for the civil servants to provide high quality, rigorous and impartial advice to ministers, even if that is not in line with ministers' priors. And then for the Cabinet Office, the recommendation we've made is the need for a stronger standing function to synthesise analysis on domestic policy from across government. There's there's a long-standing team within the Cabinet Office that does that for intelligence uh, advice to bring together evidence from across the intelligence services to give ministers a, a single view on what the evidence says and then ministers can debate and make decisions on the basis of that. But we haven't had that on domestic policy in the Cabinet Office and I think that's what really worked well in that final phase of the pandemic and having that standing function within the Cabinet Office would probably help with future crises to get that up and running much more quickly. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Alex Thomas, Gemma Tetlow, Tim Durrant and Kath Haddon. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And please do leave us a review. We've also put out a bonus podcast this week. Gemma was joined by her co-author, Ollie Bartram, and Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, to discuss the Treasury and COVID report, which, of course, you can also find at our website. And while you're there, you can find all our content looking ahead to next week's local elections and watch back our event this week with Stephen Flynn, the SNP's leader in Westminster, who faced a lot of questions about money, auditors and motorhomes, as well as the SNP's vision for improving devolution. It's been a busy week, but when is it not? the long weekend has come at just the right moment. See you next week.